Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. The last time we gathered here in this shared audio space was in 2021. So first and foremost, welcome to the new year. I hope this coming year brings you all good health and an abundance of joy. And I feel so grateful to host this show and to have this platform to celebrate the movers and change makers that are out there doing good in their communities and beyond. It, um, Hosting this show, it's definitely been a a source of joy for me to get to know the folks that have joined me over the years. And I'm really looking forward to the conversations that are yet to come, especially the one that I'm going to have today with my guests, Nikki and Taylor Strout. I met Nikki and Taylor when our paths crossed at a maker's market in Portland. And I'll just add Portland, Maine, because I feel like a lot of your minds probably went to Portland, Oregon, um, but in Portland, Maine. And this was just before Christmas. I was poking around all the booths of incredible handcrafted goods, keeping an eye out for stocking stuffers. And I didn't actually end up buying any stocking stuffers, but what I found um, was these two incredible people and separately a lovely piece of jewelry for myself. (laughs) So Nikki and Taylor own the clothing and apparel company Rugged Seas, and they craft their products from recycled fishing gear, which I feel like that model alone is is so fantastic and worth showcasing, but they take it a step further by giving back through partnering with fishing communities to ensure that watermen have the community infrastructure and environmental resources to maintain Maine's coastal cultural identity and sustain vibrant working waterfronts. So Nikki and Taylor, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're super excited. Yeah, we're glad we'll be able to connect like this, especially at a show like that. So random. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. Uh, so as I mentioned, we are just getting to know each other and you know, it's the same thing for many of our listeners. They're just getting to know you also. So I would love to learn more about your background. Will you share a bit more about where you're from and anything else that you feel comfortable um, sharing with us to give us a better sense of who you are? Sure. So Taylor and I um, actually grew up together in a small town in Maine um, called Cape Elizabeth. Um, After high school, I went away. I became a nurse and I worked in Pittsburgh for a while. And then I moved home, um, started my graduate program, <clears throat> became a nurse practitioner. And um, that's when Taylor and I uh, got together and started dating and then started our family and kind of started this crazy course of what we thought was going to be a hobby and turned into a big, huge project that um, has been really fun. It's been a big learning curve for us, but I think we're doing okay so far. <laughs> and we learn a little a little something new every day. Yeah. So, um, you know, listeners know this, and I feel like you guys know this because I, I, we mentioned it when we met, but I also grew up in Maine. And I imagine that your experience was probably similar to mine in that I spent and still do spend a lot of time outside. 
Uh, we live in an incredible state for outdoor recreation and working outdoors and connecting with the outdoors. So I'm curious to know what are your some, some of your favorite ways to spend time outside and connect with the outdoors? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, I mean, I can speak for, I guess, all of us that Maine breeds that, uh, you know, playing and, and working outside. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, that's how I was connected. And now that we have our own kids, um, I mean, that's what connects me is teaching our three boys, um, everything that I love and, and that my father has, you know, shown me. And so just passing that down is, it brings such joy, especially, um, with the fishing and growing up on the coast of Maine lobstering and being able to share that with my family. Yeah. And for, for people that are not as familiar with Maine or maybe don't even live near a shoreline, because I know that, um, you know, fishing communities seem to be pretty, pretty central to places, identities along the coastline, no matter where you are, but specifically thinking about Maine, our working waterfronts and fishing communities are so central to our culture and our identity here that, you know, without them, Maine wouldn't even be close to the same place that it is now. Will you elaborate a little bit on your connection to the working waterfronts here and fishing communities and um, specifically, you know, what they represent and what they mean to you? Yeah. And I, I kind of touched on it um, a second ago is, is, Everybody grows up along this coast here um, in the, well, a lot of most people on the coast are um, connected to the fishing community and part of that working waterfront. Um, I mean, it's, you know, generations and generations, the fishing communities and, and lobstering has been passed down and that has built uh, an incredible sense of community up and down these coasts. It's, it, you know, as you travel up and down Maine, you see all these great ports um, that were built on that heritage. Um, and you feel that when you come and visit these areas, and that's why we have so many people come from all around the world to um, see and view and, and, and get a, a piece of what Maine really is. And, you know, fishing is really built Maine, um, and that's why it's so important to keep those working waterfronts. Yeah, so let's let's actually, we'll, we'll take a step away from Maine for a minute and journey over to Alaska, uh, because I understand, Taylor, that you had um, some experience working the waters in Alaska also. And I imagine most people listening to this, including myself, have not visited Dutch Harbor or fished the waters there, um, or their only exposure to it is through watching The Deadliest Catch. Um, will you describe how you how you ended up over there and what your experience was like working in Dutch Harbor? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, as I said, I grew up fishing here and, um, when I had an opportunity, um, to go fish out there, I, you know, I, I jumped at it. Well, at first I called Nikki to see if it was okay, if I could go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, when I got the call, um, it was actually Nikki's uncle who was the captain of the boat. And he asked if I wanted to go fishing and he knew I had background here and grew up here and he needed somebody to come out. And I said, oh, I'd love to, uh, you know, when do you need me by? And he goes, well, I, <clears throat> I booked you a flight uh, tomorrow out of Boston. <laughs> and so I was at work when I got this phone call and I uh, went upstairs and I told my boss I had a, a great opportunity. At that point, I was working at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and uh, lobstering with my father at that time. So I had two bosses I had to approach about this. <laughs> and, um, and I got the green light and, uh, it, you know, growing up here, and then <clears throat> fishing in the Gulf of Maine, you know, it's a, 
it, it, it builds such great character and you become such a, a strong fisherman. But to put that to the test was to, you know, try it out in Alaska in these big seas and in the Bering Sea. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it was an, it was, and it is an incredible experience. It, it hooked me, um, no pun intended, um, from the beginning. Um, it's a little different than w- how we grew up fishing here as, I'm on a boat with, uh, you know, five other guys and you, you know, I fish six months out of the year, um, out in Alaska. And so that those five guys kind of become your family and you kind of have two different families, whether you, you know, your, your Alaska family, your fishing family out there, and then your family back home here. Um, so it's a little bit of a different experience. It's the same, same feel and, um, you know, uh, you know, all the same kind of skills that you use, um, just kind of on a bigger scale. I'm on a 150 foot, uh, um, boat right now. Um, but it's, uh, it's still that same sense of community that I had here. And I think that's why I, you know, I'm still out there and I love it. And what types of things were you fishing for out there? Um, I'm fishing for Pollock and cod. So it's a lot of your white fish. Um, you know, Pollock can be used uh, as a source of protein in almost anything now. Um, but anything from fillets, uh, you know, to, you know, your breaded fish sticks to sources of protein and anything from, uh, you know, animal food to fish oils, um, that everybody uses. Um, it's, there's, uh, there's a lot that you can do with that species. And then I also fish for cod, which is a little bit more familiar to people that are probably listening. Um, and that's a lot of the, the cod that everybody sees at their restaurants and stuff like that. Yeah. And so now, now we'll come back over to, to Maine. So Maine is changing. I feel like anyone like you, you all probably notice it. I've noticed it. Um, I grew up in Cumberland, so not too far away from where you all grew up. Um, and you know, I, I've seen it happening over the years, everything from climate to development to where the trendy places are to be in Portland or to eat, um, and so on. And so these changes are also impacting working waterfronts. And I, I feel like you all have so much more experience directly working with people on the waterfronts and out on the water. So you have the expertise and the insights that um, far surpass my own. So I'm interested in hearing in what ways you've noticed Maine working, their working waterfronts changing um, and how that's impacting watermen and, and people that work on the water. Yeah. So back a few years ago, we were going to a lot of um, petitions and meetings and discussions about certain things that were impacting fishermen here, you know, specifically up and down the coast of Maine. We have a lot of friends and family that still lobster and fish here, and that's their sole source of income. And with the working waterfronts, you know, the development along the coast, big hotels going in, um, parking garages being built on the different piers. um, And now with things like right whales and windmills and wind farming, there are a lot of pressures that it's almost like it started on the coast and sort of pushed the guys off the coast. And now we have things that unfortunately are not allowing them to fish off the coast like they have to, um, to be able to sustain their business and, and survive. Um, so it's really tricky because they're being pushed in both directions. And I think the hard part for the fishermen is they really want to protect the ecosystem as well. They're not there to just, you know, fish and 
you know, destroy the species, they are very smart harvesters of the sea. And so they, they are the perfect scientists actually to be consulting with about these different, different issues. And I think we're at a point now where it's hard because I, uh, we feel sort of like the fishermen aren't being heard and it's becoming, I think they're facing more and more of a challenge. Each day we hear about something new coming up and um, so it's hard because it's coming from the coastline, but it's also coming from offshore. And so right now it's a big threat to especially the lobster industry. Yeah. And, you know, through the the role that I, it's like my other, my other job, I feel like I have so many little projects going on, but my, my main role is working and running this group called the Healthy Ocean Coalition. And, um, you know, we feel that frustration a hundred percent coming from both sides with the fishing community and conservation groups and policy makers. And, um, I, I feel like the only word that's coming to mind right now is that it, it's just so frustrating. Like it's, that frustration is coming from all sides and it feels like everyone is being pitted against each other where we, we need to be coming to this like meeting ground because I totally agree with you and hear you that, you know, my, my so my dad, for some context, he um, is a retired, uh, he retired from the Coast Guard and now he's a waterman. He grows oysters out off of Harpswell and you know, he's out there every single day and he and other watermen and you all get this, that like, they're the first ones to notice all the changes and seeing where species are, where species aren't. And, um, I think that's an incredibly valuable information to have for conservation groups and scientists. And I know that I, I feel like I'm sort of going into this like rant and ramble right now, but I think it's just from these like years of wanting to figure out a way for everybody to work better together, but realizing that I'm like one person and I can't fix everything. Um, so I'm wondering like if, if, if uh, somebody that's working at like a conservation group or policymaker is listening to this because they, they definitely listen to this show. What do you want people to know about the folks that are working on the water and the experience of fishermen? Yeah. What I, what I want everybody to know is, you know, we all have our own opinions going into this, but we do, like you said, need to find this, this happy medium to make sure that, you know, the state of Maine stays healthy all the way around, right? Um, these, these fishermen and watermen, as you speak, have built these coastal communities. Um, you know, when you look at Portland, you know, we may be able to survive something like, you know, you know, fishing, leaving um, at some level, but you go up and down the coast or most of the coast of Maine, and these other communities solely depend on that money and, th and those fish to hit the docks. And once that, once these guys offload their product, there's so many other, uh, you know, jobs and businesses that are supported by that and that sustains those little communities. And if you take that away, you're taking away, you know, that you're shutting that community down. You're shutting those schools down, the carpenters, the painters, the all the stores that depend on these fishermen that have built, you know, for a century or centuries have built those communities and that heritage is there and everybody feels it because it's strong. I mean, people travel from all around the world to see Maine and to see what we've built. 
And there's such great value in that. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry. And I think that needs to be recognized when we're going to the table to sit around and figure out how do we move forward, keeping everybody happy. You know, we, I know we have to make compromises on all sides of the table, but there is a way to get through this so we don't lose the great state and iconic state of Maine and lobster. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so many lessons learned from when, when I was listening to you talking, I was thinking about the old mill towns that we have here. And now they're so, so many of them are just this like shell of what they once were. And you're driving through them and you're, you can see all of these beautiful homes and businesses that have been neglected in it. Uh, they're like, uh, they're not ghost towns. I don't want to say that because I don't want to offend people that still live there because I know they're still vibrant and wonderful places, but you can, you can feel the real impacts of what happens when you have a place that relies on an industry and that industry leaves. It destroys the community around it. So you're absolutely right. Um, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, so now I'm curious to know more about how Rugged Seas came to be. Like, did you guys have this aha moment where you were like getting ready to toss away some old bibs and fishing gear and this light went on or like, how did this all happen? (laughs) Well, back in 2012, um, Taylor was fishing up in Dutch Harbor and he was noticing that a lot of the the guys had fishery specific hoodies and shirts that they wore. And it was sort of this sense of pride. And he'd come back to Maine and he'd help his dad lobstering or his cousin or our friends. And he wanted to be able to provide some sort of, you know, pride and um, kind of showcase all the different fisheries here. And so he started designing hoodies. He would do two or three designs a year. And we were just selling them out of our basement. And people loved them. And people started to collect, you know, one every year. And then it was 2017 or 18 when things really started to peak with all these pressures on the fishermen. We thought there's got to be something more that we can do. And we were trying to come up with, you know, an idea, some sort of material or something fishermen use that's very identifiable and recognizable for every fishery. And Taylor thought of bibs. And I was like, you're crazy. I don't even do, what could we possibly do with bibs? And so he brought some of his dad's and his bibs off of his dad's boat home to our house. And we put them in our washing machine and we got them pretty clean. And I thought, maybe we have something here. Maybe we can do something with this. And we approached some local companies and we kind of came up with some different designs um, of um, bags that we thought we would be able to, you know, that would be handy for people and um, would also draw people's attention. And so we started making bags and clutches. And from the very beginning, um, we wanted to be able to give back. That was the key to all of this is to kind of take this model full circle, take the bibs from the fishermen, be able to sell them, tell the fishermen's story, gain some attention for fishing families here and the communities, but also, you know, a portion of our proceeds go back to support those fishermen and the communities here. So we donate a portion of our proceeds to the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association and the Maine Lobstermen's Association. 
So probably a question I should ask uh, for people that aren't as familiar with with fishing gear is what is a bib? So the bibs are if for the, the classic orange over, like overalls that people see when they come and visit us or any coastal community. Um, and we they're made out of PVC and there's both the bib bottoms and then there's jackets too. Um, and it's just the classic fisherman look that you see. That's that's bibs and that's the bib material. And that's what we were able to uh, to recycle. We uh, we started a recycling program uh, once we realized that you know these were so identifiable. Uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, identifiable. Identifiable. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, that they are they are present in every fishery, and so we needed to figure out a way to start recycling them um, at a higher rate. And so we put barrels up and down the coast at all the co-op and buying stations. So when fishermen come in to offload, instead of, you know, throwing their old gear in a dumpster on the right, they throw it into a barrel on the left and uh, we take it from there and, and we clean it and, and manufacture it into a, um, into a product that, you know, has another purpose. Yeah. So after the cleaning stages, how does, like, I'm, I'm curious to learn how it goes from old, like old bib to new bib. Like, do you partner with someone that sort of, I don't, I'm like, I'm now I'm the one that's at a loss for words, but like, how does it go from you all collected them and cleaned them to like, what happens in between there to new bib? <laughs> yeah. So we partnered with Pratt Abbott, um, a local cleaning company here, and they've come up with this great scrub and soak for the bib. So they get super clean. And then we pick them up from Pratt Abbott and we bring them up to this family owned business in Lewiston, Maine. They had actually shut down because of COVID and now they're all back to work. They've hired more employees and we've worked with them on designs and the best cuts and the best ways to utilize the material. We're trying not to waste any of the material at all. Um, so it's sort of interesting because, you know, each bag is, is handmade and when we get these bibs, the front of the bibs are pretty worn and, um, you know, weathered, but the back is great. The material's pristine because fishermen never sit down. So um, we're able to get really great cuts of the material and all the stitching is done right at Mainline Leather in Lewiston. Um, and they've been key in helping us come up with new designs and more ideas and ways to utilize more of the material, like, you know, key fobs that takes a tiny little strip of material. And so instead of us throwing that piece of material away, we're actually able to turn it into a usable product. Which tells a pretty great story too. I mean, just conversation starters. And that's kind of what we wanted this to be is, you know, when you come to the state of Maine and you come visit the, the working waterfronts and purchase one of these bags and wherever you go afterwards is the conversation starter. And hopefully our message that our brand is giving um, is a part of that conversation. And that's telling the fisherman's story. And those bibs do such a great job. Like Nikki was saying, the front of them get scratched and worn and, you know, torn in areas. And, um, and that's kind of what's happening in the industry. And it tells that, that story so well, it was almost, you know, easy for us. Yeah. I was sitting here, like I got this like overwhelming, like it was just this connection to that imagery when Nikki was describing like the front of the bibs all 
torn and worn and then the back it's like that's something i have never even thought about but like of course in in my image of all of the watermen that i've seen like of course that's how it is but like you know just making that connection of like they work hard they don't sit down and like they're all day long pulling traps and like getting every getting dirty and um i i just think it's so amazing what you all are doing and playing tribute and 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 you know teaching people about the work that watermen do. I think it's so great. Um, so are there certain materials that are more desirable than others to work with? Like I know we've been talking about the bibs. Do you also take like discarded fishing gear? Like uh, I don't know about like lines or traps or anything like that. Is there any way that you use that or is that like plans for the future? Um, will you talk a little bit more about the materials that you you work with? Yeah, um, right now it's we're seeking just the the PVC material. There's different coats that have been coming in in these barrels that we've been able to to use, um, but the PVC has just been the uh, that really ident- identifiable um, piece that that works really well. I'd like to in the future start to you know move in other things and recycle them, but right now we're just trying to perfect this model and be really efficient with it and uh, and make sure that. Um, you know, that it's proven. Um, so once, once we, once we put the stamp on that, then, um, I think we can, can move into recycling other materials, but we just don't want to bite off more than we can chew. And we want to make sure that we're, like I said, just perfecting this model, um, cause it's never been done before. And, um, even the recycling program we started, I mean, that, that takes a lot of attention to, and, and just trying to the, the logistics behind it. So we'll, we'll start here and, and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to recycle more in the future. Yeah. And I, you know, I mentioned, I've heard you mention a few different partnerships already. Um, will you talk a little bit more about the role that partnerships and collaborations play in your work and why they're so important to the work that you do? Yeah. So it's sort of key to our model and our, our whole business idea and plan to keep things made in Maine. So we work with Mainline Leather and Lewiston, um, we also work with a company called 320 Inc. They're out of Westbrook, Maine, and they do all of our wearables, like our hoodies and hats. And But the other really awesome partnerships that have kind of developed over the last year and a half, um, we work with Guy Cotton. They're a French company, and they were actually the first company to make a pair of fishing bibs. And they have a factory in New Bedford where they make a lot of aprons for scallopers. They do um, some jackets there and they have a lot of leftover cuts of material that they were, I mean, this material is really thick and heavy as you can imagine. So they were paying to have it thrown away and we connected with them and they were like, we'll give you all of our, all of our material, all of our leftover cuts, whatever you want, whatever you need. So we get a lot of remnant material from them. They've also signed on to our bib drop program. And every quarter we choose one boat from a co-op or buying station and they've agreed to outfit them with all new rain gear. So new bibs. Um, and then the other partnership that has sort of developed um, is with Extra Tough. They're a boot company. Um, they're kind of iconic they have all different styles now, but typically you see fishermen in like the tall brown waterproof boots. And they have also signed on to our bib drop program and they are outfitting a crew with all new boots as well. So it's sort of incentivizing the fishermen to kind of get rid of their old gear um, 
And also, like I said before, bringing our model full circle and finding a way to benefit the fishermen as well. So say someone is listening to this and is interested in partnering. Are you all still seeking additional partnerships? It sounds like you are. Um, But how would someone go about reaching out to you all um, with an idea for a partnership or or connecting with you all about that? Yeah, we are uh, constantly. I mean, the only way we've been able to make this work is by, um, you know, the people around us and working within our community and within the state of Maine. Um, but the connections is like how we've been able to build this brand and this, and this, and this company, um, you know, you can go to the website, um, you can, um, get our contact information on there and reach out. We've had a few other companies reach out at, that love this bib drop program. Um, a lot of them are the Marine companies that support the industry and want to figure out how to outfit boats with other things that we use from day to day just to help out and, um, you know, show that, uh, that we're there to support as well. Um, so you can go online, um, you can find our contact information and we'll start the conversation. Awesome. And, uh, you know, just listening to you all share about your operation and how this whole thing came to be, it sounds like it's been quite a lift. And when you, you know, when you're starting a company or anything like that, embarking on a new journey, there are, of course, are going to be ups and downs. And I always like to reflect on some of the more challenging times because there are big lessons that can be learned from those moments. And um, I'm just interested in hearing from you all about like, what are some of the big challenges that you faced or some of the most challenging things about your work? And what lessons have you learned from those challenges? Yeah. So when we started Rugged Seas a few years ago. I was working full-time as a nurse practitioner. Taylor was shipping out to Dutch Harbor. And we thought this would be sort of a, a hobby and a way to highlight, you know, the fishing industry here. And it's grown so quickly over the last 22 months that um, it was hard for us to keep up. So I'm not working as a as an NP anymore. This is my full-time job. We had zero business background whatsoever. Zero. Zero. We uh, (laughs) thought we knew what we were doing and uh, we just kind of dove in and it was pretty scary at first. You know, the demand was so high, we couldn't keep up with the demand. And I think the key, you know, I don't know, it's hard to speak to, you know, different mistakes we've made, but I think the key thing that we've learned is it's so important to be working with the right people and to make those connections and develop those relationships. And I think we we keep saying over and over again, the second that the fishermen feel like we're not accurately representing them, then we've lost the the meaning behind our business. Um So, you know, we've definitely learned a lot because we had zero idea what we were doing starting this company. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be really scary, but for us, it's totally paid off, I think, faster and bigger than we expected. Um, I don't know if you can speak to any. No, I think uh, we kind of touched on it earlier. It's just the having starting a business is Maine in Maine or just starting a business in general is really tough. Uh, you know, and I, we heard that starting a business in Maine would be really difficult too, but I, we found that all those hurdles that we had to get over, you know, we just leaned on the people around us um, and the other companies and businesses. And they were so forthcoming and, and wanting to will and willing to help. Um, so we were very fortunate 
to, to do that. And I would say to anybody that's starting a company is um, to lean on others, um, especially during the times that we've, uh, we're going through, currently going through and, and went through the last couple of years. Um, we've all learned to lean on each other at times. And I think that's, and it's so true with business and, and you know, to the survival of any idea that you're trying to, to breed. And, um, you know, there's, you know, there's, I'm sure there's hurdles to come in, in the future, but, uh, you know, we surround yourself with the right people. You can pretty much get through anything. Absolutely. And I know certainly personally that that's a, a big lesson that I've learned in the past, you know, couple of years going through the pandemic is to accept help from people and, you know, show up for your community, help people back. But like that, that really speaks to me. What you just said, Taylor, is that, um, you know, it, it's pretty eye opening what can happen when you get comfortable asking for help and accepting help from your community. Um, but with that, you know, also showing up when you're needed because it's a reciprocation thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's <yeah. laughs> um, which you all, of course, are doing. I'm mostly laughing because I'm just reflecting on my own my own individual journey. Which for a an audio podcast, it's <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to do. Um, anyway, so on the flip side of challenges, let's hear a little bit more about like what are some of the most rewarding aspects of this work and what brings you joy through doing this work? I think something that's come of this that we really never even thought of. Um, we've had a lot of families who have actually lost the fishermen in their life, whether it was at sea or for, you know, some other reason. And they've brought us their gear and their bibs. And we've been able to make products out of, out of that fisherman's um, rain gear and turn it into something that the family can use and remember the fishermen by. And that's happened, you know, several times now. And that has been something we didn't expect or see coming, but it's so meaningful and it's been so rewarding to be able to give something back to the families. Um, I think that's one thing that really stands out to me. Yeah, that's, it's been amazing to have them kind of lean on us for something that means so much to them. I mean, when you're a, when you're in a fishing community, when you're a fisherman, your whole family is, you know, you're a fishing family. Um, and it's kind of different, you know, when you work other jobs, you don't kind of label the whole family as, uh, you know, whatever that occupation is. And so when something does happen that, you know, it, it strikes the, you know, the whole community and the fishing lifestyle and uh, to be able to take some of, you know, the, the gear that they wore every single day and make something special for the whole family to, to see. Uh, um, which they don't usually see, right? I mean, the, the fishermen leave the dock and they're out at sea all day and they leave that gear, you know, on the boat and, and to have the rest of the family kind of get a piece of that story and that, that life that they lived um, is huge. And we just didn't see that, uh, you know, that's something that kind of just popped up to us, um, which is like one of the most fulfilling parts of starting this. Yeah, that's really beautiful for for people to be able to have this legacy piece of of equipment or material an item, like a tangible thing to remind them of their loved ones. I think that's, that's really special. Um, so what is your moving forward? And you've, you've talked about this a little bit. Um, what's your vision for the future of rugged seas? What are you aiming to achieve? And this could be, you know, in the next month, the next year, yeah, five years. I don't even know if anyone is even like thinking that far out ahead anymore. <laughs> like, what are you all trying to achieve moving forward? 
I think it's funny when, you know, people ask us that question because it's changed so much since we started Rugged Seas. Like I said, we thought this was going to be a hobby and now it's sort of like, oh my gosh, we've kind of done something. At least we feel like we've been able to do something for the fishing industry here. There's so much more we can do, but we've seen this model work here. We're able to create jobs here in Maine, give back to the communities that need the support. And so our big dream is to move this model into other states too that need this type of recognition and you know need funding. And so with Taylor fishing up in Dutch Harbor, he sees it, you know, every time he's up there, this, you know, if we could make this model work in a place like that, that would be amazing. I think that's you know a huge goal. That's probably more of like the five-year goal, like you said. In the next (laughs) few months, um, (laughs) Taylor actually leaves on Friday to go back to Dutch until May. So my goal is to to survive and keep the company (laughs) growing and thriving. (laughs) But um, I think um, our bib drop program too is something that we're really trying to grow and find more co-ops and buying stations that would like to be part of it. And that's more of a, you know, over the next year kind of plan. And we've got some big collaborations and partnerships that um, we've been working on. That'll be really exciting to see when they launch. So there's a lot on the calendar in the next one to five years, I think. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> it's like one day to five years. Yeah. <laughs> Just get through the day. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so again, how can people stay in touch with you and follow along with your work? I know you mentioned your website, but if you want to mention it again, and um, I, I know you all are on social media. Um, so just where where can folks go to stay in touch with you? Um, so our website is www.ruggedseas.com. If you want to email us, you can email us at ruggedseas at gmail.com. And then we're on Instagram, Facebook, um, I think those that's pretty much it. I don't know how to do TikTok or any of those other things, so we don't do that. But. Yeah. I've just accepted that um, – well, I, I think I, I feel like I've aged out of TikTok. Like I'm yeah. in my 30s. And um, I have this theory that any TikTok that I'm meant to see will find its way to me. Yeah. Like someone will text me it or it'll be on like Instagram or something. So if I'm meant to see it, it will find me. Yeah, I agree. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I always wrap up my show with the same series of questions. I ask all my guests these, it's like three and a half questions. Um, and I sort of started doing this couple years ago because I found it really interesting just to see what everybody's different perspectives are. Um, So we've just kept with it. So we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're faced with right now? I think for our fishing community right now, it's going to have to be um, the whaling regulations. Um, And that's just, I know that's kind of smaller scale, but uh, I think that's the most pressing for for the communities, um, most pressing for the, the fishermen, uh, for the ecosystem, for the environment. Um, and that's like what I said earlier, something that we all need to get around the table around and uh, and find some common ground here and not be so uh, one sided on it. There's there's a lot on the line. Um, so I would I would see some, you know, it's it's both policy and environment, environment. Right. Um, 
And so that would be the most pressing for me right now. One that scares me the most for, uh, for the fishing community and the impact that it can have. Um, and what are you energized about moving forward? What, what motivates you to keep doing this work? I think that we've seen, um, you know, our moms will tell us, Oh, is that, I was at Hannaford today and I saw someone in a rugged seas hoodie and it's like, it never gets old. It's always exciting to see people wanting to support the fishing industry and seeing fishermen feel like they're being accurately represented. We know that there's a lot coming down the line. Um, like Taylor just spoke about that can really affect lobstering and fishing here in Maine. And so we're really working hard to find other ways to create more funding, to give back to the fishing communities, to be able to support them and also tell the fishermen's story. And so what drives us is to get the that information out there and to be able to help fishermen feel heard and not feel like they're silenced and that you know, what they see out there every day, like you spoke about earlier is important and everyone's hearing it and taking it into account when making these big decisions that are coming down the line. And this next one is a two-part question. You two can answer it however you want. There are really no rules here with this, <laughs> this like social experiment with these questions at the end of my show. Uh, so the first piece is what is the best advice you've ever been given? And then we flip that to what advice do you have for our listeners? The best advice I've ever been given, it may sound kind of cheesy, and but my mom you know, was a single mom and she raised my sis, me and my sisters to always work hard and never, you know, have to rely on anyone else. And I think that's part of why, you know, we work as a fishing family because I'm able to, you know, handle everything with the three kids and running this company even while Taylor's away. And so my mom drove that into us, you know, as, you know, very young girls. And so we're pretty independent people. Um, the best piece of advice I could give others. And I think what I try to instill in our boys is, um, to have confidence in yourself and decisions that you make. I think it's really important to be, you know, listen to others and hear others' opinions and, and advice, but have confidence in choices that you make in your life and be proud of yourself. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of follow that up. The, I was kind of raised the same way. Um, you know, I was raised by a, a fisherman. My father is still, a, you know, a lifelong fisherman. Um, but, you know, to, to follow your passion, really, and, and it's so kind of cheesy to say, but, um, you know, you really will find, you know, the happiness in your work. Um, instead of being buried by it, you know, you're, you're driving it. And, um, and I found that with fishing and it's, you know, people ask me why you, you keep going out to Alaska and it's, you know, it, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is that, and I'm really happy out there and I love the work that I do. And that, you know, I, I feel like more people should be, should be doing the things that drive them and keep them extremely happy. Um, and that's kind of why we started this other company too, is, um, it's something that was installed, you know, that I, I grew up around and, and, and that is needed to, you know, support the fishing community. But um, following your passion, it's as cheesy as it sounds. It's uh, it, it is a really uh, true saying to to have, you know, some real happiness in your life. If you're happy what you're doing at work, because it's something you do most of the time, you know, you'll be you'll be generally happy and the people around you will feel that, too. Absolutely. 
And I'm so glad that I met you both. You two are awesome. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work you're doing. And I look forward to staying in touch and following along. So thank you both for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. This is this is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we love opportunities like this and, and how, you know, like I said, they're just so random to, to meet people and uh, have, a, you know, strike a conversation at a maker's market and then um, and to be able to sit and talk and, and you know, tell stories. It's it's cool. It's uh, it's kind of what this whole journey has been about. So we appreciate you having us on our on, on the show. For sure. And if you like what you heard and want to hear, hear more of this and shows like this one, uh, find us. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We can be found on any of the platforms that you prefer to listen to podcasts on. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are encouraged and welcome. If you are a lover of social media, you can connect with us online. We are at Coastal News 365 on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook, we are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. If you'd like to connect with me personally, I am Jenna Valente on Instagram and Yena Bena on Twitter. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.